Welcome to Commune, a global wellness community and online course platform featuring some of the world's greatest teachers. We are on a mission to inspire, heal, pass down wisdom, and bring the world closer together. This is the Commune podcast, where each week I do my very best to explore these ideas and practices that help us live this healthy, connected, and purpose-filled life. You can check out all of our courses, our community, and everything we do at onecommune.com. Now, carbon in our atmosphere has been measured at 415 parts per million, the highest in human history. The prevalence of carbon in the atmosphere is the number one cause of global warming that is causing desertification, food insecurity, sea level rise, oversized storms, and massive fires. In short, threatening the feasibility of human life and the life of millions of other species to live on this planet. But carbon itself is not the enemy. All sorts of living organisms are made of carbon, including you and me. In fact, the amount of carbon in the world has not changed. We have simply displaced it, 880 million gigatons of it. Through the mining and burning of fossil fuels and industrial farming practices, we have redistributed carbon from the ground into the air and the oceans. Now, it's so easy to be pessimistic about global warming. The problem, indeed, is daunting. However, today's guest on the show, Finian Makepeace, might just have the solution. Now, I can't tell you what it is just yet, but it's hidden in plain sight. Now, Finian is the co-founder of Kiss the Ground, whose mission is to inspire participation in global regeneration. He works closely with businesses and farmers and leads programs that train advocates to address the issue of global warming. You might also know him from his fraternal musical group, the Makepeace Brothers. If you are passionate about global warming, and if you're not, you probably should be, then check out Finian's course on Commune, Soil is the Climate Solution. Oops, I, I gave it away. Just go to onecommune.com for more information. I'm Jeff Krasno, and welcome to Commune. My name is Finian Makepeace, and I'm one of the co-founders of Kiss the Ground, and currently I am the director of advocacy for Kiss the Ground. Got it. And I'm going to ask you what Kiss the Ground is, but I also just have to ask you, um, you know, about your name, and I'm sure you get a little bored talking about it, but for listeners, you know, t- it, it feels to me like you, that would be a lot of pressure to have a name like that. You know, like, you, do you have the license to be angry from time to time? You know, we'll get into serious matters, but I just want to poke at you for a minute. Uh, it's interesting. It, I, Growing up with it felt right, and in, in, I think for my brothers. I have three other brothers, so there's four of us all together. But uh, we each had our own experience with it, but... I have definitely felt like a person who is thinking about that subject and have since I was three or since I can remember. Uh, even when I was very, very young and, you know, the five-year-olds were, you know, excluding the three-year-old, I'd be like, let me go hang out with the three-year-old and see how he's doing and make sure he's feeling right. So I felt interestingly... Uh, totally comfortable with it and very aligned with it. I can't say the same for my brothers. I don't know what exactly the struggles they went through. I know some of them with it, but um, 
even in middle school, people oh, make peace. Be like trying to like break the bully up from doing this and be like, well, right. fortunately, I was tall enough to be able to stand to the bully and be like, no, bro, you're not gonna mess with people. But you know, so people could make fun of me, but it it didn't really permeate because I just felt like I can do the right thing. I have that unique position and ability, so I will, and it it feels okay. I don't. I didn't have that sense of embarrassment about it. Yeah. So. Well, you had legitimacy. <laughs> baked in <laughs> right you're like i'm not a poser this is my given name i'm here to make peace god damn it yeah and I, what i'm saying is i think i think i would have been played a similar role no matter what so you know iron there's irony in it but i, I think i would have been doing those same things because it was pervasive throughout my life of like looking out for people trying to make sure something was was right um give me a little um description of, of kiss the ground and the and the mission and the work that you do Awesome. Kiss the Ground's mission is inspiring participation in global regeneration, starting with soil. And really what that's about is understanding that humanity has a role to play. And it's different than the role we thought we could play, uh, that we can act as stewards uh, to help the world heal. Instead of being a plague, instead of being just a, a species that is degrading and diminishing our land, we can actually help be a keystone species that helps regenerate the land. Hmm. And arguably, now that the land is so degraded, we're the only species that can actually do it because of our ingenuity, because of our ability to, to use tools and to help nature get back on its feet and to regenerate itself. So the soil part starting with the soil, comes from this, uh, really the birth and origin story of Kiss the Ground. Uh, myself and, and one of the other co-founders, Ryland Englehart, both having this big aha moment of, wait a minute, soil, climate, carbon, wait, what? Like, right. I was an environmentalist, heavy uh, activist person throughout my whole life. And I had the moment of, hearing this message in a four-hour lecture and saying to myself, if I didn't know, if I didn't know about the soil connection to carbon and soil connection to water, all these different things, I'm pretty sure 99 or 95% of the population also doesn't know. Sure. Lo and behold, seven years ago, no one really knew. We make a joke. Even Al Gore didn't know. Leonardo DiCaprio didn't know. Like, this was an emerging... Uh, idea in the human consciousness that soil played this big part of the climate uh, equation. So that was the the birth of Kiss the Ground was realizing that we could uh, act as contributors to helping get this message out, spreading awareness. We weren't farmers, we weren't scientists, but we could help spread the awareness to the world that soil and humans' ability to help rebuild the soil could play a role in, in sequestering carbon, balancing the climate. Yeah. Can you spend a moment sort of framing the nature of the problem? Because I think before we can talk about how we can sequester carbon and what, where are we now and, and how did we get there? Big question. Simply, humanity, arguably, for the past 10,000 years, has been in a relationship with our natural surrounding areas to produce our food, our fiber, and even our fuel, uh, we've been causing the degradation 
to land. So even if you look at, let's say carbon, for example, just that equation, since uh, the, the birth of agriculture 10,000 years ago or so, the world's soils have been depleting of their carbon stock. Hmm. So even if we, we start accounting for all that and then the industrial revolution hits and all of a sudden a much greater amount of the soil's carbon stock is released. That means also the fertility of the soil. So first and foremost, when we're talking about climate change and carbon dioxide, almost all of the news we're hearing is centered around fossil fuels and their contribution to the uh, increase of the greenhouse effect, that blanket of too much carbon dioxide in our atmosphere. Now, that is a majority of what humans have done to to cause a uh, climate blanket to, to impact uh, our, our warming earth, but we are not considering often how much soil, soil carbon, and biomass has also been a contributing factor to the additional carbon in the atmosphere. So inside of the climate equation, humans have for 10,000 years been adding carbon dioxide into the atmosphere on a very large scale. If you think mm -hmm. about, for example, the Fertile Crescent, right? It's called the Fertile Crescent, not as a joke, but it actually used to be fertile. That's because that was where agriculture started, but over time, by agricultural practices, we were diminishing the fertility of the soil. The fertility of the soil, which we'll talk about in a little bit, is the carbon in the soil. Mm -hmm. So when we're talking about climate change, and, and in many estimates, it's around a third of the excess carbon that we put into the atmosphere has come from the depletion of soils. Most of our cultivated soils uh, at this point, having lost 50 to 70% of their carbon stock. Mm -hmm. uh, obviously, like I said earlier, the Industrial Revolution made it happen much faster but even old school old school old school farming that was quote unquote organic back in the day you know in egypt or whatever that was still taking carbon out of the soil putting into the atmosphere and, and cre uh, adding to that legacy load of carbon we have now and so if i understand it correctly the overall sum of carbon globally is has not really changed it's essentially we've redistributed or, or or displaced it on some level we've obviously more in the last couple hundred years well since the industrial revolution through the mining and then burning of fossil fuels but even going back to the uh to the agricultural revolution 10 mm -hmm. or 10 or twelve thousand years ago um through these farming practices that you talk about essentially through excess tilling and a whole bunch of different things mm -hmm. that we'll address. We're really just taking the carbon that is in the ground and putting it up into our atmosphere and to some degree also our oceans. And that is what is creating the problem in the oceans of acidification and the extinction of species in the oceans. But then yeah. what you have referred to as the warming of the planet um, and the greenhouse effect, mm -hmm. um, which then by extension is responsible for all of these other uh, let's call symptoms sea level rise mm -hmm. desertification food insecurity soil degradation well that's, that's well it. i'd love yeah i'd love yeah. to talk about that uh, as possibly separate but i just wanted to add for for listeners to get this point we, we push this hard there is not more carbon now than there's ever been right there is the same amount of carbon than there's ever been it's just in 
places that are causing warming to go too much. Now, we need some sort of greenhouse effect. We don't want to be freezing. We don't want our, our, our planet to turn into an ice ball again. So we need a certain amount of carbon in the atmosphere to create a, a good uh, human condition or all the animals and plants that live on the earth now. We need that condition to stay right. We've just put too much carbon into the atmosphere. And so when we talk about carbon pools, we have the atmosphere pool, we have the ocean pool. So there's a bunch of carbon in the ocean. We'll talk about that in a second. We have the biomass, which is all of the life and plants. And then we have the pedosphere, which is the soil uh, pool. And then we have the fossil pool. Now, those are the ones that are currently in play right now. There's a bunch that are also in rock and, and cement and these different things. That, that's kind of a side note, even though it's a really big component. We, we talk about the, the first that I, I just mentioned as the, the carbon pools. So when we're talking about the pedosphere, the soil, as a carbon pool, that's the one that one of the ones that's been left out. Most mm. people you talk to understand that trees help sequester carbon. Plant a tree, sequester carbon. People understand there's carbon in the atmosphere. People understand that there's carbon in fossil carbon, which is coal and, and gas and oil, right? And now more and more people are understanding that the ocean is a big sink for carbon. Mm -hmm. So the problem right now is there's too much carbon in the atmosphere. The ocean is being a big sponge and absorbing a lot of that ex ex excess carbon, creating uh, carbonic acid, which is acidifying the ocean, which is, has a whole myriad of problems attached to it. So we're saying, hey, everybody, we got the news. Now we want to share it with you that did you know that the soil is actually actually still holds more carbon than the atmosphere and the biomass combined? And we can build it back faster than we ever thought possible that's the big news that's why kiss the ground exists was oh my goodness not only did the loss of soil carbon contribute to what we have right now in the atmosphere but we can work in our farming to build back soil faster than we ever thought possible that's the big news it doesn't take a thousand years to build a centimeter of soil hmm. we can do it in three or four or five years so really and that that's, that's, that's a, I mean, we're building, I mean, if you just think of, um, and, and these are numbers that, that we wouldn't want listeners to just quote necessarily, but when we look at a soil profile, when you go from, you know, this much topsoil, and then uh, we're showing about an inch, and then over the course of 10 years, you go down 14 inches, what you're doing is building organic matter down into the soil. So you can increase the, the topsoil layer, what would be considered the O horizon, by 14 inches, some people are doing in, in the course of 10 years. Right. That's not saying that we're building 14 inches of soil, because people would think of that as adding on top of, but we're really building down 14 inches, which changes the whole playing field. That's that's more sponge for water holding capacity. That's more bioavailability for uh, nutrients. All these things we can talk about, which is like, oh my gosh, we can help nature build that back faster than we ever thought possible by light years. So it's really exciting. Yeah. So just to get a sense of the numbers, because I think, you know, I read, I see numbers in, in the headlines and, and newspapers and whatever, that the most, the, the most recent number I saw was somewhere around 420 parts per million. Uh, yeah. Some, we just went over 415 about a month ago, 415 parts per million got it. of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. And what is a sustainable level? Well, Bill McKibben and the folks at 350.org and a bunch of the scientists kind of agreed several years ago uh, that 350 parts per million was 
the place that if we stayed below it, we wouldn't deal with runaway climate change, so to speak, where where things just started spiraling out of control. Mm-hmm. Um, so 350 is kind of that, like, that's the threshold. We've already surpassed it by far amounts. If we look at the before the Industrial Revolution, we were at like 280 parts per million. So Let's talk more specifically about the solution, mm-hmm. about regenerative farming practices about what role soil can play how do you execute that Mm -hmm. what's the plan um great hit me (laughs) so first i like to i like to start off by acknowledging where our thinking is at and this is something that i worked on and and kissed the ground and several of our organizations that we work with are pretty confident about is that most human thinking right now is inside of the what we call the sustainable mind, which is how do we do less harm? You and I are both looking at our lives and our community's lives. How can we do less harm to the planet? We're on a sinking ship. How do we sink slower, basically? Uh, that's what's happened because over the years, as I mentioned earlier, as we started agriculture, almost every society was degrading their land's ecosystem carrying capacity. That's how much life could be carried on a parcel of land was diminishing as they were producing food because you're beating up the soil, you're, you're producing your food, your land gets worse, and that means the carrying capacity goes down. So if you go to brittle environments like the Middle East, where they're quickly, very rapidly, even with um, not big farm equipment, reducing their carrying capacity of their land, all of a sudden you say, wait a minute, 10,000 years of this becomes a pretty entrenched frame or viewpoint of this is just what we do humans to create our needs we degrade the land aside from a few cultures and societies here and there that have not done this most societies have kind of just seen oh to produce food we need to degrade the land and so that agreement unfortunately has landed us in the solution being uh uh-oh with a big growing population how are we going to do it less badly that's our solution conserve sustain but that's the mindset shift that we're hoping that globally humanity can really wrap its its brain around is wait a minute our farming the very thing that has been this so detrimental over the 10,000 years mm-hmm. can actually be the thing that is regenerating uh, biodiversity ecosystem carrying capacity carbon into the soil water holding capacity replenishing uh, water sources springs rivers all these things this is the phenomenon that we're saying, wait a minute. So first, that's the first invite is helping each other shift our mindset so we can start thinking regeneratively. And that thinking makes us see and perceive humans' future, not as inevitably going to Mad Max, right? We're saying we can actually perceive and believe in and have faith in this abundant world that many of us now think is, nah, that's not really possible. That's a pipe dream. But no, we're saying, no, no, no. Let me take you to a farm, Jeff. Let me take you there and show you what three years ago looked like and then what it looks like today. That's what we're so hopeful about. That's what gets me up in the morning to say, this is an idea whose time has come because, you know, there's been revolutions in human history. We, We all believe that this is the big, this is a big one. When we shift from thinking how to do less harm to thinking, oh my goodness, we can help regenerate the world not just by planting trees, but working with the whole ecosystem to increase its carrying capacity. What we're looking at first and foremost is this concept of what did nature 
invent, so to speak, over over these years and years and years, is this amazing process. And to put it simply, plants, anything from a tree to grass to you know little little shade tree or whatever, they're all working in this phenomenal uh, capacity. Well, where they're taking carbon from carbon dioxide in the atmosphere through the power of the sun, the sun hits their leaf in the chloroplast, they are taking that energy and ripping apart carbon from carbon dioxide, connecting that carbon with hydrogen and water from uh, H2O, sorry, hydrogen and uh, uh, oxygen, pardon me, from H2O, and they're making carbohydrates. So using that energy, they're ripping things apart from the sun, they're ripping things apart and then combining them back together. So that energy that is then harnessed inside of that bond is what all of life is is fueled from, right? That's how when we rip apart those bonds, that's what fire is. That's also what you know gives us our ATP energy in our body, etc. That's the fuel of life, right? What we didn't know, this is the big part. What we didn't know until you know 20, 30 years ago, really, and in 1996, a big discovery on this happened, was how much of that liquid sugar, carbohydrates, that the plant makes to build itself was being pumped out of the roots to feed soil organisms. Mm -hmm. That's the big news flash. Oh my goodness, 30 to 40, sometimes up to 80, depending on the time of the year, season, or what have you, that's an abundance of carbohydrates. Liquid sugars are being leaked out of roots to feed soil organisms. You say, well, why would they share that much sugar? Why would they give that much away? Well, because the organisms in the soil, the biology, the... The, um, the fungi, the, all these different nematodes, all the bacteria, they're consuming that or consuming each other. And in exchange, they're the ones putting out their enzymes mm-hmm. that actually make the soil uh, available, the minerals and the nutrients in the soil available for the plant uptake. Mm-hmm. So that's the really what we're looking at is that's the big news is, oh my goodness, there's way more carbon being pumped into the ground every year whenever plants turn green than we ever knew and that's why we know now we can build soil faster than we ever thought because we know that if we maximize photosynthetic capacity on land if we're maximizing that to pump as much sugar into the ground to feed as much organisms into the ground then we're building soil because those organisms as they live and die they create glues that glue the soil together which make more air space and water space it's also uh, creating a condition where more of the bacteria and things are eating themselves out of house and home and they're putting carbon dioxide into the atmosphere so we can cover the ground to protect it. When we also have covered ground, aggregates, which folks can learn more about online, those things are broken open and broken apart. So when it rains and you have bare soil, you actually break all these amazing structures apart. They turn into teeny particles and they compact and they make it so water runs off. They seal the ground. Right. So that's a problem. So then you have animal integration. And why animal integration? Nature is a biodiverse animal thing. It always has been if your farm can do that. And then you have uh, biodiversity, obviously maximizing biodiversity. Uh, we have living root. We have uh, uh, um, armor on the soil. We have biodiversity. We have animal integration. And we have least disturbance. So when we understand, as I said one more time, plants are pumping carbon into the soil, organisms like fungi and bacteria are aggregating it together, making these sponges. When we till the ground, Mm -hmm. when we uh, 
put a bunch of chemicals on the ground, when we roll major heavy tractors over the ground, all of these things are creating disturbance for those amazing structures in the soil. So least disturbance is, is that last mm-hmm. principle. Yeah, I mean, I've seen these NASA images um, in the spring where where first there's a bunch of tilling in the early spring, mm-hmm. and then you see kind of the plumes, the yeah. plumes and then actually plants start growing. Well, just as stuff. So he's it, talk, Jeff's talking about the plumes that you can look up on, on, on YouTube, NASA, during the spring in the northern hemisphere. You're dealing with plumes of CO2. And what we're getting to the audience is, look, that's CO2, carbon dioxide, that's being created because we're disrupting the carbon that's in the soil. Right. Yeah, go ahead. And and then, you know, a month later, Mm. things start to grow. Mm -hmm. And essentially, like, nature takes this massive inhale, you know, and Mm -hmm. you see see the the levels of of carbon in the atmosphere start to decline. Exactly. So the one more add-on of that that is so profound, as I just mentioned earlier, 30-40% is the average of how much those sugars are being pumped into the ground. So now when you look at that NASA image on YouTube, when you see all of that uh, CO2 being reduced in the atmosphere, and you're like, oh yeah, plants are growing. They're made of carbon. Cool. Be like, remember, 30-40% to of those are being shared out of the roots, and that's creating, in many cases, this humus, this long-term stored carbon into the ground. So if we can maximize that, that can change everything. Nature invented a way to do this. We can help nature do it. And we can help nature do it in a way that can feed our whole our whole population. saying, well, how are we going to feed 10 billion people? Well, currently we have enough food for 7 plus billion people. Well, what if we're increasing the carrying capacity per acre of land, right? Mm -hmm. Just one example, people put a lot of uh, issues with with beef production, but I was just at a farm last year making a video and the gentleman went from the land holding one approximately to feed one cow, he would need 11 acres. He was on 5,000 acres of land, right? To feed one cow, 11 acres, just for the cow to eat. In three years, moving that down to one cow being able to be fed off of two acres. Mm-hmm. That's called increasing biomass, increasing soil's ability to function as it should to make a massive amount of, of uh, perennial grasses come back. So if you increase the biomass production, of a piece of land, you're actually without synthetic fertilizers, without any additives, you're increasing the holding capacity of that land. So there's more butterflies, there's more bees, there's more everything. And in the, in, as you mentioned, the outcome is very highly nutritious food and a more abundance of it. So we can have our cake and eat it too. That's, it's kind of too good to be true in some ways, but when you go to these farms and see what they've done, it's like a miracle. And so, I mean, it feels like that is the real challenge. There's a hundred million acres just in the United States of agriculture. Um, how do you uh, propagate this switch over to regenerative farming practices, uh, you know, with farmers, I think, whose average age now is in their mid-60s, mm-hmm. um, 
and uh, who are used to doing things a certain way, who are getting some degree of government subsidies to create, you know, monocrops. How do you essentially help to create that change on the scale that is needed? Great question. Uh, there's a lot of answers to that question, but um, first and foremost, everyone who's listening can help play a role in this. We've watched over the last seven years as we've been in this that the understanding, the comprehension, and awareness of this has been blossoming in an amazing way, and it, it leaves us all more hopeful each day. But if we let's just talk about um, corn growers or, or soybean or whatever. Um, if you ask farmer trainers, regenerative farmer trainers, what it was like for them to try to go pitch a room on regenerative agriculture 10 or 8 or 7 years ago, they would explain to you how much of a lack of a listening there was. Fast forward 7 years, and it has changed quite a bit. Not only are farmers in, in particularly in the Midwest, certain areas where they're getting hit harder than ever with issues with climate, you know, these big rains come, these floods happen, there's no soil sponge, their diminished ground is, there's having all these issues, but their input costs are going up every year. And so they're struggling to keep up with increased input costs to have the same yield outcome. So they're listening, and now that regenerative agriculture has started to become more of a, of a common understanding, you're seeing more and more of these farmers, everyday farmer guys, who are you know going to be the ones, the heroes that we all need, really, at the end of the day. We, we're seeing them come out much more uh, excitedly and passionately about saying, how can I int integrate cover crops this year? How can I start to potentially bring in cattle to... to to take down these covers? How can I use roller crimpers? How can I start to reduce my input costs? And I, I have a quote page I was working with uh, Tim Ryan on, on his campaign for talking points. And I put together one of them. And, you know, we have farmers who are saving $100,000 year one or year two on input cost reductions. Mm -hmm. That's huge. Yeah. I mean, when you look at getting your system set up, with the, the folks we work with, the Soil Health Academy, we, we work with sending farmers and scholarship programs through them. So if people are listening, how can I help? Well, you can fund a farmer. We're dedicated by 2025 to 5,000 farmers trained in transition to regenerative agriculture. And we work with the Soil Health Academy. We work with the Savory Institute. We work with agrarians. These are kind of premier league regenerative farmer training programs. So we help as a conduit for them to get access to scholarships for farmers who who aren't able to take it on their own. We focus on a farmland program, getting farmers trained, and we're dedicated to about 50,000, by 2025, 50,000 soil advocates, people who've been trained on giving this message to whether it's their city council person or whether they're communities or it's them in farmland communities helping register farmers for farmer training, whatever it is. We can have anyone find a way that they can help. And then generally, yeah. if anyone wants to really help this message, you can start spreading the word. Go to kisstheground.com and you can find your path. We have a pathway tool where you can basically cater it to your own specific uh, areas that you want to help in. And you can immediately start to spread this message and get it uh, to people all over. So yeah. yes, people can be a huge help. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that that's key because obviously I think there's a lot of, particularly millennials that are very, uh, they're very concerned with this issue, but also you know, are wanting to create a legacy of impact in their own mm -hmm. life, but they're probably not going to start a farm, right? Or, yeah. or they may. Um, but well, the, we definitely need more more young people coming into farming too, yeah. for sure. But there there are other ways 
potent ways to contribute if you're passionate about this? Well, we kind of go under uh, this theory of change, which is pretty general. Awareness leads to actions, leads to outcomes. And mm. in the courses I teach, so advocate training, we, we have awareness circled in a big yellow circle, which is basically saying, look, we all have to collectively work together to bring the awareness up to critical mass. Otherwise, the amount of actions and outcomes aren't going to suffice. So if we just, you know, let just the people who are listening here learn about this and then get involved, like, well, that's not big enough. We need the farmers. We need the new people to this. We need the old people who've been in this for a long time. We need everyone helping as much as they can on the awareness bubble. Mm -hmm. And that's happening, luckily. I think one of the challenges for over time, the last 40 years for the environmental movement, per se, and speaking very generally, uh, because this, you know, the science on global warming is not necessarily very new. Mm -hmm. I mean, people have been aware um, of of the warming planet for 40 years. Um, but it is very hard, I think, for people to become emotionally involved in this issue. And I've seen, I've seen you be very emotional about this issue. Um, and I think that that's always been, for me, like one of the keys. Um, because it, I think it is easier um, for humans to become emotional around what they deem as human issues, immigration, mm -hmm. images mm -hmm. of kids being separated from their parents, civil rights, um, and in all of its permutations. Um, how do you stoke that emotional connection to this issue? That's a great question. Um, a lot of the work in, in the course we're, we're doing together, um, there's work on this is I believe everyone has a unique story behind, you know, why they're even listening to this podcast, for example. Um, but we, I implore people to find their own why, uh, meaning diving in and, and trying to, to reach into their history, you know, whether it's 10 years ago, whether it's when they were a child, whether it's three months ago to find the times that they went through a shift when when they pivoted, when they took a step down a new path, and recognizing that some of the leaders that they look up to or people they look up to, a lot of us or, or the folks who, who I'm looking up to have found that. They found why they're called to this. They've written it down. They've spoken it aloud. They've come to terms with why they're passionate about it. And just in that search, just in that... Uh, uh, pulling back the onion and finding that nugget in there of like, here's why I care. That can give you passion, or at least access to your own passion. Mm -hmm. You don't have to try on someone else's passion. You don't have to take it. You can identify and agree with someone else's, what I call their why. You can be like, yeah, you know, Martin Luther King had a, a really strong why, right? He was like, okay, I can, I can get with this guy. I, I, I identify with that. That why is also my why. I, I'm here because he is giving me a context of what I believe too, but you can find your own. And I think the, the passion for this, you know, I, I think I get a little too excited often on, on the particularities, but really what we got and the thing that I, tr I have to stop myself from, from getting emotional about is like, I was an environmentalist. I cared. I was in involved, but I didn't actually believe that, 
myself or humanity could get out of this. Hmm. I didn't. So recognizing that place, as passionate as I once was, I was looking at it's only going to get worse. We're only going to deal with with more refugees. We're only going to deal with more droughts. We're only going to deal with more flood. We're only going to deal with more immigrants and this and that because we are dealing with this big thing called climate change. So when I got that we can do this, when it really registered, that for me personally was the basis of the passion was, okay, this is a reality. This is a possibility. Is it a long shot? Yeah, because where we're at currently, like don't want to go there at this moment, but we're close. We're close to the beginning of the big end, which is not what anyone's family or anyone wants to deal with. But we have this moment. We have this time right now where we can, as humans, be a cause of the earth regenerating. Hmm. So the big hope, the passion for me is, oh my gosh, acre per acre, a 5,000 acre farm in two years can completely transform what happens in that region. A bunch of farmers could get together. The, the Indiana, Indiana, all these states are, you know, huge pushes to cover crop and everything. That means we can allow more water to infiltrate. You know, f- we, we are treating these things as we have to come up with a Band-Aid for flooding, for drought, for this, for that. Be like, what if we step back and address the big problem? Our land is not functioning properly, period. Okay, now let's address where we're at with climate. What can we do about that? Simultaneously, obviously, if we address that problem with the, 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 the land functioning, we've also sequestered carbon, right? That's a benefit. But I just wanted to address that of like, that's real hope, Jeff. That means people can say, we have an opportunity to not just have it get worse year after year. Yeah, I mean, I think what you are doing... Which is so important, and, and but it's 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 beyond, um, it's beyond the climate. Or another thing that you're doing is you're essentially providing people with the opportunity to have a greater sense of meaning in what they're doing. Mm-hmm. And I think, to me, that is the emotional key: is that in everyone's life. That is actually what makes them fulfilled. That's what, I mean, Viktor Frankl would mm-hmm. call that man's search for meaning is essentially this is what it, to have a full life, to have a happy and contented life, you need to find that meaning. And what greater meaning could you devote yourself to, whether you live in a city and you're an advocate or you're a farmer or whoever you are, um, than to address the issue of our time? Um, and to yeah. me, that's when it gets, it, it becomes, um, it transcends as a cerebral issue and becomes sort of a, a passion of the soul. And that's so, that's so perfectly said because it, it speaks to exactly what happened to me, which was, I was passionate, you know, compared to my friends or what have you, activist guy, but I was still working in that hopelessness, mm-hmm. defeatedness, apathetic nature. Because I didn't really believe it. I didn't really have evidence that we could turn the ship around. And that, you know, like you're saying, whether you're in a city and, you know, you're working on even with your city council on on how we're dealing with stormwater, how are we, you know, having one gallon of water help to regenerate this whole little area. Like every bit of nature is designed to help regenerate and rejuvenate itself. 
And now as humans that we know that, we can actually be these stewards that are helping to have the land come back to function in in some ways, arguably in some areas, better than it ever has. Because we know the dynamics that, that nature uh, has, has provided and, and made, made available. So that's what was that big shift for me of like, when you talk about being a contribution, when you talk about having that meaning in your life, I tell you what, it is tiring to be an environmental activist right now without the hope that I have. Mm-hmm. And I just want to pass this on to listeners of like, take a bit of this because, oh my gosh, talk about a different feeling when you're working towards, working with helping things in a big, massive way get better versus fighting against things getting a little less bad. Mm-hmm. Man, talk about like, <laughs> you know, what you need to get going. Yeah. It totally changes. You know, those, I had, a, I had a daughter recently and she's 18 months old and I don't know if we're going to get there. I don't know if we're going to turn the ship fast enough. But watching what's happened, watching the fact that this was on the Democratic debate stage, watching that this has been going on, that there are people talking about this, that thousands and thousands of acres are converting as we speak to people saying, I'm going to make this decision. I'm going to leave a better land to my kids because I know I can't. I'm not just going to keep down the struggling, addicted path to, to all these uh, all these pharmaceutical drugs for farms, right? Yeah. Um, Seeing that that's happening and that everyone listening, like you can play a part. Yeah. No, I mean, just going to to Apricot Lane um, and standing on the high point of the land and looking out, you can see essentially their plot uh, versus like the Driscoll Farm and the other things that are essentially around the perimeter just by the lushness and the greenness. It's the same land, mm-hmm. same access to water, same mm-hmm. same deal but just different practices. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it just fills you with that hope and that optimism that this is possible and that we can do it if we essentially apply our human innovation and and ingenuity. And Um, it doesn't have to... Apricot Lane, they started with a particular situation. They they took some money to get that going. We have farmers all across this country who are saving money Uh year one. Yeah. Year one. Year two, they're saving some of them, like I said, $100,000 or $200,000 a year. Like, that's what we're talking about. And even further than that, year three plus, you're increasing your carrying capacity. That means your yield's going up while your biodiversity's going up, while your soil health's going up, while your water bills are going down, and you have, you know, zero input cost at year three or four or five if you if you came from conventional. Yeah. That's amazing. That's, and that's where I, yeah. I feel so it feels so awesome because it really is happening. This isn't just theoretical. We really have farms that are having, you know, you know, one guy, this farmer has like second best corn yields in the county, you know, straight regenerative farming and all these other people being like, oh, you're never going to, you're going to fail. You're going to fail. You're going to fail. But that's what's so exciting is we're having success, 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 success. Yeah. So cool. So exciting. Thank you, Finney and Makepeace. Awesome. I bless you for all the work you're doing. It's a pleasure, and you too. Thanks for all the work that Commune has put together, and we look forward to seeing people on the course, right? We're doing it. Yeah. All right. Thanks, buddy. Thanks for listening to today's show. I've said this before, but nowhere is this call to action more apt and needed. It's so easy to feel paralyzed by the enormity of this problem, but you are an active participant in the human condition. My hero, farmer philosopher Joel Salatin said, 
The human condition is simply the aggregate of billions of little decisions. You can make a difference. For more information on this topic, check out Finian's course on Commune, Soil is the Climate Solution. Just go to onecommune.com. If you have comments or questions about today's show, shoot me an email at jeffk at onecommune.com. Thanks again for listening to the Commune Podcast. This is Jeff Krasno, and I'll see you next week. <music>